With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. It's Reb from Rebuttal. Just a reminder that a lot of trigger warnings for this episode, um... If you have a loved one who has recently passed or not recently passed and this would be a touchy subject for you, please do listen to another episode or take a deep breath and drink some water and move on. Um, This is very much going to be upsetting for people who um, don't want to think about um, bodies being mishandled. So. Love you so much. That's that's the warning. But love you. Okay, bye. Hello, my party people, and welcome to the Rebuttal Podcast. As always, my name is Reb Maisel, your host, your resident speaker, the head, the bobblehead, the voice of the rebuttals that we have on deck. Welcome to episode nine of this lovely damn show that we've created together, that we've vibed about together, that we've chatted about, right? That we've been in the DMs and the comments, on the phone, on the texts, on the emails about, have been loving your feedback, truly. If you haven't left a review on this podcast, um, you don't have to. I'm not really like a peer pressure gal, but do it. If you get a giggle and get a cackle from, from me ever on here, me and my mic and my, and my vibe, my moment, I genuinely just really like seeing what you guys have to say. I read all of them and die happy. I, yeah, I just really cherish everything that you guys have to say about the podcast how it's been helping you get through the workday or a drive or just, you know, something to talk about with your family. And, you know, as I did comment and have chat on in a TikTok video that I posted like last week or the week before um, about, you know, the submarine going down, going dizzy down and imploding with those people on it. Um, We're not going to talk about that on this podcast because like it's been done. Like I... I'm sure there are 85 fucking documentaries and podcasts on deck about this. And the whole point of this podcast was for me to talk to you guys about legal things that are obscure or stories or cases that are that are interesting that we can learn from. Okay, we as in like you mostly, me secondarily. <laughs> um, and not just be a sounding board and a sounding box for like every, you know, most popular cash grab clickbait bullshit thing that can possibly come up in the news. But um, I will say that if this podcast is somehow a fucking omen for what is to come, we need to really start battening down the hatches and buckling the fuck up because dear golly God, how in the hell did the one episode 
that I do on this podcast that probably had like a 0.2% chance of being relevant in the present day end up being the most asked about thing I've ever had asked about in my DM and M's and my, in my email and my comments and stuff. Uh, yeah, you guessed it. It's the eating people alive part one and two episodes because everyone was thinking that these submarine people were lost at sea down there and like, just like waiting it out with like one sandwich between the five of them. Um, yeah, that was interessante. That was interesting. Very shocking. But you know, all I'm fingers crossed praying for is that that trend doesn't continue. Okay. Like I love it. Right. I love getting some buzz, garnering some chat, some, some movement for the pod, but I also am not psycho and don't want this to be a prediction corner. Okay. Like I'm not going to do like palm readings and shit. Oh my God. Even if I had, see, that's a thing is for the palm reader bitches. Love you so much. Even if I had that ability genuinely, like if I was a witch, okay, and I could do that shit, if I could palm read like y'all, okay, if I like the people who are like, ooh, woo, woo, and can speak to mediums and shit, I would never do it. Like I would, I would simply ignore it. Like I would get a tingly wingly in my toes, right? Like predicting some shit. And I would just pretend like I did not see a thing, didn't hear a word. I don't want that on my shoulders. And I also just don't want people to ask me questions all the time. You know, like I honestly think it would be that mostly is that I feel like everyone would just bug you, which, yeah, as a lawyer, everyone bugs me anyway. I get phone calls from bitches who like, you know, I went to high school with who were like, hey, how have you been? Um, So my ex-boyfriend was arrested for DUI. Like he has his hair. Da-da. And I'm like, girly, like what happened to hello? How are you? Chill. Like we weren't even friends. Whatever. Um, yeah, I think that mediums, palm reader bitches, psychics get that times a million. I personally would rather call a psychic than a lawyer. Um, but my recommendation to all of you and to also myself, unfortunately, is to, yeah, always call a fucking lawyer. (laughs) If you have, if you're ever in a situation where those are your last two options, where life throws you a curveball to the dome and says, hey, psychic or a lawyer, your turn. I don't know about y'all, but I might pick the lawyer after a hesitation for sure. Like I'd for sure hezzy, you know, because I'd be like, well, like for the bit, what does the psychic have to say? But but yeah, if the situation doesn't necessarily uh, pace you, place you in legal peril, then maybe the psychic would be great for the bit. If that ever happens to any of y'all, let me know what the report, report back. You know what I mean? Report back on how that is. Um, what do they say? What do they tell you? Um, and were they right? I love to hear shit like that. It's like my favorite thing. But that just simply leads me into, hey, I'm not psychic. But uh, this podcast did, you know, a month before the submarine incident, do an episode on uh, people people eating other people, maritime cannibalism. Um, And today we are going to do an episode on something that, dear Lord, if it repeats, um, I would say we should all buy lottery tickets. No, I wouldn't buy a lottery ticket. I would fly to Vegas 
and run the crafts table like it was no fucking tomorrow. Pay off my student loans real quick. Sometimes I have very long tangent intros. This one, I am actually shocked I even had anything to say before this, before we started with this case, because I have been literally jittering in my chair, squealing like like a child at excitement about telling you about this. Not because I'm excited, like happy, like this is so amazing. Like those, you know what I mean? Like the true crime feral bitches. I've just like, I can't contain, I can't, this is too, like we should all know less about each other. You know what I mean? Like for sure. And so with this podcast, I love learning information. Like I love learning shit. That's why I became a lawyer. I literally was good at school and I like learning to put two and together like it really isn't that complicated people are like oh you were always going to be a lawyer since you were nine i wanted to fucking ace a test and set the curve and and pin my shit to the fridge for the rest of my life that's what i literally wanted to fucking do um and that's what i did so yeah i love learning but you know unfortunately as people who love learning know that can very often and quickly lead you down holes of learning information that you so badly want to go no and put back, take out of the shelf of your fucking mind and put back into the receptacle that you dug it out of. And this one, okay, for sure is one of those. The moment I stumbled upon it and read, I'm not kidding you, three paragraphs in, I was like, I can't, I, I'm, I'm watching, a, like, I don't want to read more, but I have to because it just kept getting, like, this case, I, I, the case that I basically saw that I found to read to you, this whole saga of fuck, um, we're actually going to get to at the end because it literally is, like, a culmination of everything that happened and it was, like, jaw on the floor with this, like, court's, this judge's essential, like, court opinion basically summarizing, summarizing as best as they could the facts from like a 30-year saga of fuck. And I was literally three very skinny, very like early 2000s cocaine era skinny paragraphs in. And I was like, I have to tell someone about this. I can't. I don't want to know it. So I have been circling back. I've been jittering in my chair, so fucking excited to tell you about it so that I can unload (laughs) and not think about this anymore. Because once I talk about something, then it's like, then we're done. It's over. I'm out of it. I'm over it. And then all of you can be traumatized. Are you ready? On January 20th, 1987, Wilbur Wentworth, the fire marshal and assistant fire chief in Hesperia, California, received a phone call from his neighbor living nearby in San Bernardino. He was calling to complain about the thick cloud of black smoke that had been coming out of a factory nearby for the last few months. Wilbur's neighbor told him that the air around the nondescript building in the desert outside of Los Angeles smelled like burning human flesh. To that, Wilbur said, I don't think so. That's a ceramics factory. To his surprise, his neighbor started yelling at him on the phone, quote, don't tell me I don't know what burning bodies smell like, he said. I was at the ovens at Auschwitz. At that point, everyone in the quiet community of Hesperia, California, already knew about the factory called Oscar's Ceramics. At times, a nauseating black smoke plumed out of the factory's chimney and settled over that section of the community like a cloud from hell. 
Since the factory was firing clay ceramics in the kiln all day, cups, pots, bowls, you name it, everyone in the community just accepted it. They weren't happy about it, that's for sure. No one told them beforehand that a ceramics factory would be this stinky. But what could they do? However, there was one neighbor that was not having it. That neighbor was a World War II veteran, and his unit had been the first to arrive to liberate the Nazi concentration camps. Wilbur, the assistant fire chief that the World War II veteran called on that day, January 20th, 1987, was still skeptical when he drove out to Oscar Ceramics to investigate until he opened one of the massive brick furnaces. A burning foot fell out. Scattered around the interior of the factory, caked black with what they described as, quote, body slime from the brick ovens, were trash cans brimming with human ashes and prosthetic devices. The soles of Wilbur's shoes stuck to the floors that were slick with human fluids. What the authorities found when they raided the warehouse in January 1987 was beyond imagination. Outside was a sludge pit of liquid human waste mingled with dirt. Inside were gallon cans filled with human ash, bone, and partially cremated body parts. All were the work of a ruthless mortician who would stop at nothing to corner the market on death in the city of angels. This is the insane true story of David Sconce, the 1980s mortician who turned his family's funeral home into a nightmare cremation factory, pulling gold teeth, harvesting organs, and threatening literally anyone who got in his way. Greed, corruption, theft, fraud, murder, strange plot twists, all center around one shitty former bench warmer of a bad football team and a fourth-generation family business, a Nepo baby, a failed football prospect, a guy who tore his ACL and swears he would have gone pro, who just happened to have parents who would write him a check and hand over the biz, right? It centers around that, around this fool, around this loser. But the theme of this episode, right, not so much the thousands upon thousands of bodies that resulted, right, that are at stake here, that are at issue, you would think, okay? The legal concept that I'm going to teach you that you are going to learn about that I think is interessante, it's interesting, okay? That is, yes, just one fucking facet of this cluster fuck of this history of fuck behind this man, David Sconce, okay? But the legal concept is somehow a whole lot messier than burning bodies and stealing firearms and being an asshole. Today, we are going to learn about conspiracy because, of course, oh yes, David Sconce's hot mess of a criminal history, okay, the fuck that I was referring to, involved a shockingly high amount of, for one, crematoriums being run to burn bodies illegally and harvest body parts and organs, et cetera, 
but also a shockingly high amount of conspiracies to commit murder and allegedly potentially more than one that were carried out successfully, including the conspiracy to murder a district attorney, sconces competitors in the mortician industry, okay, and several random people in Ventura, one of which was allegedly poisoned. Why, you ask, why all these people? Well, all these people wanted to expose David, right? All these people were sniffing around. All these people were asking some questions that they shouldn't have been asking, right? One thing that I've learned um, about keeping my neck, right, attached to my body, my cuerpo, is to stop asking questions sometimes, okay? I know that when it is not a billable hour, um, I can just shut my fucking mouth, right? I can just walk away from a situation, from a person, from a vibe, from a plume of black smoke and think, that's crazy. I'm going to keep it moving. Mind you, right? Thank goodness for the individual, the World War II veteran who, you know, was ready to get on his fucking phone and dial up a line, right? Like he, you know, I mean, how horrible would that be? 30 plus years later, after smelling the smell of a mass amount of burning bodies, driving to your house one day and going, there it is. Like, I, oh, I can't even imagine. His ass was on the fucking phone, right? And his ass, he said ACAB from Jump. He was like, no, that's not who I'm going to call. I'm not going to call Ghostbusters. I'm not going to call the police department. I'm going to literally get on the line with the assistant fire chief, which I think is such a moment, such a vibe. Because the assistant fire chief, when they rolled up, right, they didn't like roll up with like the cavalry. They rolled up with like him and like the two nerdy fucking guys who were like the inspectors of the funeral homes, you know what I mean? Whatever. And they walked into a fucking shit show. But, you know, it all makes for an interesting story, I guess. But then it also makes for something nice and interesting. I get not nice and interesting, but it also makes for something interesting because the phone call, right, where the where the World War II veteran says, you know, don't tell me that I don't know what burning bodies smell like. I was at the ovens at Auschwitz. One thing that's different between, I think, firefighters and cops are that when firefighters tell you something, it's usually the truth. Probably at the same rate that like a normal person's testimony of events is going to be the truth, right? Like could be lying, but like could not be. Police for sure, statistically, not so fucking much. Not to be much. If you're offended, um, then you're not a lawyer <laughs> or you aren't in court or you're a cop and you know that I'm right. <laughs> so I would I would apologize, but I'm not sorry. So know that any apology I give is just going to be worthless. So really, what's the point other than a good laugh? Um, any hizzle. <laughs> so all of you get it. All of you got it. Okay. The theme of this episode is conspiracy. Conspiracy, 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 and you are going to learn a little something, something, okay, about it so that you, the next time that all of your friends group together and say, hey, do you guys want to maybe get together with some buddies, form a union to potentially advance or further 
the making of a criminal enterprise potentially for the completion or furtherance or of, of an overt act in order to advance that enterprise. Maybe next time you guys link right at your local Starbucks, at your local Dunky Donies to discuss this over a cigarette, a beer, and clearly an unemployment application, y'all should y'all should consider what I'm going to tell you. Thank you so much. Amazing. We are going to start off not with David Sconce, but with the history of funeral practices in America specifically. Um, I know that there are likely many a statistic about the absolutely predatory nature of the funeral industry, of the death industry, right? One of the most vulnerable times in anyone's life is having to exist in the aftermath of their loved one passing. And if you are a loved one that ultimately ends up being in charge, right, of like their finances or their funeral arrangements or whatever, in that moment, it's extremely difficult to make decisions so quickly, which that's also such a bummer is that, you know, when someone passes, whether it be at a hospital or suddenly or wherever, like they're like, hi, yeah, that's super sad. Sorrow's prayers. Um, you need to sign this. You need to get this. We're transferring the body. Where do you want to take it to? You need to get a da, 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 and a plot and a this and a that. And what are the arrangements? And when's it going to be? And, you know, the things happen so quickly that it's such a whirlwind and so fucking traumatizing and beyond beyond reason. The history of funeral practices in America reflects a complex evolution of the relationship between death and money. Before the Civil War, most Americans died at home and were buried nearby, often in the local churchyard. But the war had young men dying far from home, and families of dead Union soldiers begged the army to embalm their sons and send them hundreds of miles north. The embalming business boomed. When Abraham Lincoln was shot, for example, his embalmed corpse was beautified by Dr. Thomas Holmes, the father of embalming, and sent on tour across the nation. The dead body of Abraham Lincoln became an incorruptible image of a peaceful afterlife mm -hmm, that he entered peacefully, as we all know, and not with a bang. Over the next century, the American funeral industry would upsell grieving families with services such as embalming and makeup, mahogany caskets, expensive headstones, and elaborate funerals. A practice later exposed by journalist and activist Jessica Mitford in her groundbreaking 1963 book, The American Way of Death. Go off, Jess. Okay, and I'm so sorry. Mitford, the last name, this, I'm staring at the camera right now. This is take like 40 fucking two of me saying the word Mitford. And I know it's her last name, Jessica Mitford, but like it does not flow. It's not flowing for me. I love you so much. Me and her are going to be on a first name base. We're going to be on a first name basis. Okay. Pretend like she's my homie, my best friend. Um, oh my gosh. If you think this is offensive or unprofessional, welcome. Kick back, relax, enjoy the show. At the time Jessica's book was first published, the average bill from an undertaker was $750, which is $6,300 today. By 1991, when the book was updated and revised, the cost had risen to $7,800, which would now be today $14,500. So it's climbing like inflation. 
For many, cremation was becoming a cheaper and more attractive option. Light me up. Light me the fuck up. And then, of course, right, in the middle of this fucking story, okay, you're probably like, what about David Sconce, right? Like, forgot about him. Yeah, period. Because the queen of the story is our girl Jessica, okay, our girl Jessie J. Jessica Mitford, okay, the one who wrote this book exposing all these bitches, okay, in her book, The American Way of Death in 1963, published that shit, was like, the funeral industry, the death industry is so exploitive. It's so predatory. Shit is crazy. This shit is bonkers, right? And they were like, damn, we hate you. Okay. Whatever. Um, listen to this is what I aspire to be. Like, if y'all were wondering, like, oh, like you get, you know, how do you stay like, how do you like deal with the haters? Like, whatever, or like, how do you like stay confident or like stay like in your bag and like sassafras, whatever? This is the energy that I pull from, right? I just sample energies from like 85 different either real life people or stories or theories or hypotheticals. 99.8999% of them are women and the other percent are LGBTQ plus or trans or non-binary. Maybe a sliver of a fucking paper cut for men, all of which are my father and my immediate best friends. This is the energy that I'm pulling from, okay? Because listen to this degree of of just fire petty and she got the last fucking laugh, okay? Before Jessica died in 1996, she requested to be cremated and had the bill for her cremation, which totaled $475, sent to the corporate headquarters of a funeral home chain. God, I love it's just it's just a breath of fresh air. Like I love that. The first crematorium in the United States was built in 1876 in Pennsylvania. By 1913 when the Cremation Association of America was founded, there were 52 crematoriums across the nation including the Pasadena Crematorium, which would later be purchased by David Sconce's mother's family. We're connecting. Cremation was once a niche business, that's for sure. Um, but thanks in part to the success of Jessica's book, Rest in Peace, the number of people cremated in the United States in the decade after Jessica's book's publication rose by nearly 80%. 80% her power, right? Like her power for sure. But, you know, could be a positive in a lot of ways, but then in this story, not so much. By 1982, 32% of people who died in California were cremated, the highest rate in the nation. This leads us to the beginning of our story, of, of the beginning of David fucking Sconce, right? Where does he drop in? Where does he drop a line? Well, it all began with, because everything is cliche named, and all this fucking, all these goddamn stories, okay? We had Dudley first. Dudley, okay? That bitch. Now we have the Lamb family funeral home. Yes, Lamb, like L-A-M-B, like leading a lamb to slaughter. Like, please. You know what I mean? That's why at this point, anytime anything is too on the nose, I'm just going to listen to it. You know? Like, I'm never going to walk into a fucking house on like literally dreary lane. You know what I mean? Like not dreary, like where the where the muffin man is, but like dreary, like sad. 
I'm over it. You know what I mean? Like, like the conjuring house. Okay. Full offense from the look of it on the outside. I would have caught the vibe and I listened to the vibe. That's the thing. One thing about me, I can read a room, but I also listen to the room. I listen. I'm attentive and adjust my, my actions accordingly. Okay. I look at signs and I read them and then I walk away from them. That can't be said for all of my past relationships for sure with respect to flag colors. But, but that's the thing. I don't miss red flags. I catch them. I see them. And I say, you know what would be fun? A lap around the park. You know what I mean? Like who doesn't love? Betsy Ross can understand, right? A love of a good fucking flag. Yeah, they're not all beautiful. They're not all going to pay off. They're not all going to be a long game situation, but doesn't mean they don't need someone to throw in a stitch or two. Maybe make them bigger, you know? Make them flourish a little. Or maybe take them down a few notches, right? From the pole. Go, yeah, half masked, babe. You are not half the man that you think you are. But I'm rooting for you in spirit. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <laughs> the Lamb Family Funeral Home was a fourth generation family business located in Pasadena, California, which is just north of Los Angeles. And this home, this funeral home, was squeezed between a strip mall and a residential neighborhood. Because of course it was, right? tasteful. Charles F. Lamb. Yep. Charles F. CF, CFL. Charles F. Lamb, then president of the California Funeral Directors Association, oversaw the building of the funeral home in 1929. It was designed to be elegant but comfortable, filled with sofas and armchairs, right? For when you want to take a nap. You might think I'm joking, Quote unquote, slumber chambers were available for families to rest in if they so chose. A brochure described the funeral home as, quote, home in every sense of the word. Be fucking for real. Lamb also had the smarts to purchase the Pasadena Crematorium a few years earlier. It was located a few miles away in the Mountain View Cemetery in Altadena. A double oven structure built in 1895, it was known among funeral directors as the oldest crematorium west of the Mississippi. Oh, we're getting into some weather. 
1985, Charles Lamb's granddaughter, Lori Ann, wow, oh my God, Lori Ann Lamb Sconce. Like, come on, what the fuck are these names? Lori Ann Lamb Sconce, when she was 49, okay, Charles's granddaughter, we're gathering, scraped together $65,000 as a down payment and bought out the family business from her father, Lawrence, who had succeeded Charles, okay? What's 65K? 65K in 1982 is $204,000 today. Word. Oh, 1985 is $183,000 today. Lori Ann was a bright, cheerful woman once described as, quote, movie star beautiful by a rival mortician. So either she was super fucking ugly and they were making a joke or they wanted to do an enemies to lovers. Who really knows? Lori Ann played the church organ and wrote gospel songs with her choir group, the Chapel Bells. <laughs> it's kind of catchy. As the director of the funeral home, Lori Ann was the first person to greet guests with a box of tissues. She loved funeral work, especially the task of beautifying the dead, aka applying makeup to the waxen skin of the embalmed. She thought it was crucial to look your best when you met your maker. Mind you, okay, there are definitely some like, you know, some author creative liberties being taken here. Um, these, This excerpt, right, that excerpt that I just read for you, was primarily taken from an article called The Mortician and the Murderer, written by Angela Diavignon for Topic.com in 2019. My sources will be in the show notes. Lori Ann had dropped out of college to marry Jerry Sconce, a charismatic six-foot, 200-pound football player at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm sorry. I am a gaucho. I am a former gaucho. Gaucho at heart. Gaucho always. UCSB. That's my school. It's my college. Um, not really loving the alumni here, but look, we can't all be good apples. <laughs> Fuck. She met Jerry Big J at Sunday school, which like is just funny. Like there's a lot of heavy... Um, church going activities with this family, which, you know, um, just goes to show and solidifies the very obvious, the very clear, the very no fucking brainer principle, idea, theory, absolute scientific fact that being religious and going to church in whatever religion that you are doesn't make you a good person, right? And the word religious, quote unquote, I'm referring to people who are like me being religious and identifying as religious simply means I need to check these boxes, right? That whatever sermon I'm listening to or book I'm reading from is telling me to check off to reach the end of being a good fucking person and, you know, get the fucking first class ticket seat the comfy, right, like good for your lumbar spine shoes on my way to heaven. First in line, fast pass. I'm part of the HOA for the gated community up there. Like whatever it takes to get me up there, I'm going to do. And then actually have no fucking care or regard for like genuinely being what I consider to be religious, which would be like being in touch and in tune with whatever higher power that you believe in or non-power you believe in. Like even being atheist, I think, is like inherently a religious act. I know that's so weird. But 
like, and I don't want anyone who's an atheist to be offended by that. But I think that, right, like you, it's being religious is not so much to me the idea that you are adhering to a religion. I think it's the idea that you are taking the principles that you can draw from your beliefs and applying them to your life and to the lives of the ones and others around you in a way that makes you and them and the world better, right? Being an atheist, for example, someone who's an atheist and they don't believe in any higher power and they think, you know, life just like cuts out, cut the cameras, right? All goes black. I have met atheists who are 50 times better and more lovely and what who I think are righteous fucking people um, than like the most devout Christian woman that I've met in my life. You know what I mean? So, you know, just like a thought, just like a fun thought, like food for thought situation. Um, yeah, these motherfuckers were going to church. They were first in line for the fucking church drive, the church cookie drive, and they were cremating all their fucking friends. And um, yeah, they stole they they stole a lot of parts of them. If you know what I'm if you catch my okay, we'll get to it. Lorianne's husband. Oh, this is good. Lorianne's husband, Jerry, okay, my fellow gaucho, was considered a loser, a cheat, a layabout, and a hustler. By her father, Lawrence, which he ate him up, shit, like, damn, send him down the river. You got him, Lawrence. Hell yeah. Jerry sucked, okay? During this time, Lori Ann gave birth to her first child, a son, when she was just a few days shy of her 20th birthday. And it was this son, David Sconce who would go on to both inherit Jerry's charm and his talent for scheming and take it to an entirely new level. Loving the segues for this episode. Thank you so much. You're welcome. David Wayne Sconce was described as a hothead and a creep because if they're going to show you who they are, believe it, right? Rule of fucking thumb. In addition to us learning about conspiracy, we're going to be learning about that. If someone shows you who they are, believe them. Thank you. David was a golden boy turned failed college football player with blue eyes that led some to compare him to Paul Newman. Look, David Sconce originally wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and become a football player. His dad, Jerry, had obviously, like I said, played for the U University of California Santa Barbara football team when it existed and later became the head coach at Azusa Pacific College after graduating, became the head coach and later became the head coach at Azusa Pacific College. After graduating from high school in Glendora, David enrolled in Azusa Pacific, of course, the Christian college where his father worked. It's giving Nepo baby already. Um, in 1974, that's when he enrolled, with the hopes of becoming a football star and playing for the Seattle Seahawks. Like every young, bold, overly confident, no one's ever told them they ain't shit kind of guy, right? Um, yeah, well, he rode the bench. He rode the fucking bench. He fucking sat on that goddamn bench, and he was super lame. Um, but, you know, he he dropped out right after riding the bench for too long, after the team wasn't good. He was like, I don't want to do this anymore, of course. Um, yeah, he thought that the losing streak that his team was on was hurting his prospects of being a top NFL defender. Right? Look, one thing about men, they really don't change. They really don't change. This was in what, 1974? Yeah. We're like half a century later. 
Yeah. I could, yeah. Name name someone in your head right now, a man who like acts like this shit. You know what I mean? Who would have gone pro if you wouldn't have torn his ACL. Yeah, we all know one. We all know one. We all know one. Okay. Let it go. Let it go. In 1974, as a freshman in college planning to major in business, he robbed a former girlfriend's house twice to get revenge on her for breaking up with him. It's, you know, he he is running an incel subreddit before Reddit was a thing. You know what I mean? The second time that he burgled his ex-girlfriend's house was on Christmas Eve while she was at church with her family. After burgling the home, he apparently then went to the church, slid into the pews, and like attended the session with while the family was sitting there to, as like his alibi. Um, yeah, there was that. He eventually, apparently, broke down crying because, again, like I said, right, all these tough guy boys, little, like, Nepo baby, little bitches, okay, little, like, white boys who've never been told no once in their fucking life, they break down crying, okay, and run to the cops and turn themselves in, and the cops are like, oh, my poor buddy, and they, you know, he got, he had to, like, pay a fine or some shit, right, he had to pay a fine, but this was his first dabble-wabble, his first yabba-dabba-doo, in, in some criminal enterprising, right? And I'm not saying, you know, anyone who's burgled someone as an 18-year-old is going to end up being, you know, a self-proclaimed runner of the fucking kilns, which is horrifying, of human bodies. Um, yeah, I'm just, you know, it, it, look, the writing was on the wall. If you, if you combine a lot of different elements of this man's personality, okay? It's giving a lot of narcissism, nepotism, things like that, right? Which can only lead us on the path of destruction. Oh, um, and even better, if you, you know, if you guys were holding on to the last shred of like, maybe this guy is just like misunderstood frat boy. Um, yeah, frustrated and bored, David was, after losing his football games, burgling his girlfriend's house, and eventually dropping out of school, he and his buddies egged houses and beat up homeless people in their past, in their, in their free time. Yeah. So there's that. Um, yeah, I think it's safe to say that um, we're, there's nothing left, right? Not a, not a shred left that I feel bad for. Desperate for a job after leaving school, David found work as a dealer in a casino and as an usher at a hockey stadium. He even took the test to become a police officer and passed with flying colors, but was rejected at the end of the line because a vision test determined that he was colorblind. It's the only thing keeping him. Yeah. That's, I mean, look, I know that there have been podcasts done about this and I know that it stems from um, the Golden State Killer being a former cop, whatever, but I think that they're, you know, and I know people are going to be like, well, you're an attorney, you're biased. I'm like, well, yeah, but like, you know, it's like an oncologist being biased against cancer. Like, sorry, yeah. Like, I mean, the thing, the disease that I'm trying to eradicate and destroy that just keeps, you know, spreading no cure. Like, yeah, no, for sure. Like, 
call me a cancer hater. Like, sorry. Um, yeah, that's how I feel. I'm, and I'm just saying purely if I had no interactions with police, good or bad, if I was completely on neutral ground, um, logically, and also I think realistically, and I think a lot of like, you know, people, researchers, people who've done like statistics on things or whatever, or like even like some criminal like pathologists, things like that. There's so much to suggest that some of the gnarliest serial crimes or even not even the gnarliest, even like some petty serial crimes, like arson, arson shit or like, you know, just random shit, right? Random stuff. Rapes, like violent crimes to like the most petty shoplifting bullshit. A lot of it has the potential to have been committed all by active law enforcement because like you can get away with that shit, right? And like as we know, as I posted a lot of TikToks about, if you're listening and you don't know this and you don't know already like my spiels, um, it takes not a lot to become a cop and that's a fact. It's not propaganda. Like it's not an opinion. It's literally like the Federal Bureau of Investigation, like the federal government does like literal just like tally survey surveys of of police academies and they just ask them, you know what I mean? Like how long is your program and what did you teach them, whatever. And like the average, the average, 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 meaning the average. Okay, Google what average means. Okay, average. Average amount of training poll of all police academies in the United, entire United States for like entry level like you become a patrol officer, a cop who has a what badge and a weapon is 10 weeks. That's it. That's it. To learn everything they need to know and learn all of the laws that they need to enforce. And I just did a quote with a deadly weapon. And I have to go to school for four years of undergrad and three years of law school and then six months for the bar to, in, you know, argue about the laws in court without a weapon. But who the fuck am I, right? Like, who the fuck am I? <laughs> Anywho. In 1982, David, after being rejected by the police academy on a whim, was 26 years old. And at that time, after being encouraged by his parents, okay, to join, he decided to obtain his embalming license and join the family biz. Okay, join the family business. Be the Nepo baby that he always was meant to be. Okay. David Sconce, however, found embalming school to be boring of course, and said, told his parents, everyone around him that, you know, that wasn't where the money was anyway. Like that's really not what he was going for. Um, he wants to get rich quick, right? He's tired of having to burgle his girl, his ex-girlfriend's house. Okay. And, and, and record manifestos of himself, like getting upset and crying to police. He's tired of it. So he told his parents that he wanted to start his own cremation company, working as an affiliate to the family funeral home. Because of course he does, right? We heard about Jessica's book, her shit is popping, her shit is bumping, and he's like, let me get in on this, okay? In late 1982, okay, he's, again, still only 26, which is nuts, he used his industry contacts, Nepo baby, and the two crematory furnaces from his family's funeral home business to start his own company called Coastal Cremations Incorporated. Coastal Cremations, which is ironic because if you know where Pasadena is, not coastal, <laughs> not even close to a coastal, but like, Good try, right? It's on the other side of LA, the other fucking side in traffic on the 405. David Sconce's business plan was simple enough. He would obtain a license from the Department of Health to operate a crematorium. His company, Coastal Cremations Incorporated, 
Incorporated would advertise itself to funeral homes in LA that didn't have access to a crematorium. Okay, because apparently not all funeral homes do. Didn't know that. Now I do. David's big idea for generating business for Coastal Cremation Incorporated was to offer the service for less than half what was considered the industry standard at the time. For just $55 per body, he was now offering lower prices than every other crematorium in the region, if not the entire country. Sconce would arrange to pick up a body, transfer it to the Lamb family's crematorium in Altadena, wait the two hours it took to cremate a single body, one hour to burn, one hour to cool the oven, and bring the ashes back to the funeral home. Sconce would charge the funeral homes the low, low price of $55 per body, and you would think that any handling of human remains being offered at Burlington Coat Factory prices and discounts would be an immediate red flag, right, to these funeral home directors, these people, absolutely not. Business was fucking booming, okay? People were lining the fuck up to send these bodies there, okay? According to state law, standard procedure for cremating a dead body at the time, and I hope today, was that only one body could be burned at a time. The body would be burned, one body per furnace. Then you would wait for the oven to cool. Then you would collect the ashes, and then the oven would have to be cleaned before moving on to the next body, okay? Sounds like that makes sense, okay, right? Like that process. Yeah, our boy David was like, feels a little inefficient, okay? David quickly discovered that even though the remains of a person were often referred to as, quote, ashes, there actually were very little ashes left in the residue from a cremation. Fun fact. Unfun fact. When a body is incinerated at 1600 degrees Fahrenheit, all of the soft tissue, the fat muscles and tendons dissipates as a gas. What is left are primarily chunks of bone that have to be pulverized until they are reduced to a consistency somewhat finer than rock salt. At Pasadena Crematorium, they did the job with a small cement mixer and two shot puts. Ugh. Sometimes white powder was added to the take backs to make the mixture, quote, more attractive in case anyone wanted to examine what was in the take back container. The crematorium routine at Pasadena Crematorium, okay, was easy to learn. Why? Because David Sconce, the leader, only had one commandment, which was cram as many bodies as possible into the furnaces, each of which was only three and a half feet tall, four feet wide, and eight feet long. The workers, obviously carefully picked by David to be psychopaths, made a game of it. And I know I've said this before, trigger warning, but like truly trigger warning for like mishandling death, like horrible. These employees would hold a running contest to see who could jam the most bodies into the furnaces. Normally, it was only about nine bodies per furnace, okay? Even though, right, like I said before, they were built only 
to do one body at a time because that was regs, right? That was regulations. They didn't want, for obvious fucking reasons, you don't want more than one in there, okay? One at a time. Nope. Nine, nine per, per furnace, but much obviously depended on the size of the bodies. Once, with effort, an employee of David's got 15 bodies inside one of the ovens. When the bodies first came in, they were held in the cold room until there was enough to fill the furnaces. Then they were stacked one on top of the other like dishes on a shelf until the furnace could hold no more. When space started getting tight, a worker would go to the opposite end of the furnace, which also could be opened, and use a pole with a large hook on the end, similar to a fisherman's gaff, to snag the bodies and pull them inside. This is horrifying. Oh my God, this is horrifying. Ugh. I can't. I can't. I cannot. Anywho. One of the employees worked who who testified to all of this um, worked for David from December 1982 until 1987 in January during the raid I told you about. During that time, he could recall performing a single burn, meaning one body in the furnace, only one time. So complying with the regulations that literally every crematorium has to abide by, only one time. In that instance, the mother of a local lawyer had died and the attorney insisted on being present for the cremation. I'm not going to say the attorneys knew, but like we kind of maybe we have an inkling maybe maybe if i got into like more cases or if i was on more cases that involved the death industry i would also be that paranoid because they were right who fucking knows but they were right every other cremation that this employee witnessed or participated in involved at least two bodies the cost benefit for coastal cremations came with the sheer number of bodies that sconce intended to burn he would keep the fires going all day planning to burn multiple bodies at once, sometimes five or six at a time, a misdemeanor in the state of California. Fun fact, at that time, it was a misty to do this. Eventually, Sconce's employees were cremating anywhere from five to 18 bodies at a time per furnace that were only built to hold in one, one body. They would then dump all of the ashes together in huge barrels, which is just chills horrifying when it came time to collect the ashes for the family's employees were instructed to collect 3.5 to 5 pounds for female remains and 5 to 7 pounds for male i mean like the the most jackass moronic system we have going on here for the most you know horrifying and potentially sacred and meaningful thing like you know you could be asking someone else to do a stranger to do cremate your loved ones out like i can't even believe i can't i can't can't even go there by 1985 holy shit balls coastal cremations was burning over 8,000 bodies per year and they only had two furnaces at their location in altadena and those furnaces were running upwards of 18 hours a day 
I'll spare you from doing the math. That's a lot, right? They're working in bulk. That's what they were doing. They were doing Costco numbers on their bulk sales, which is gross. Although he began his cremations in mid-1982, in mid uh, Sconz didn't actually uh, register his business until 84, right? Because he's just like, he wanted to test run it. And apparently in this country where there are regulations and, you know, registration systems for a reason, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I don't know, like safety regs and shit that like prevent you from going down into a submarine and having that shit implode, right? Um, yeah, people can still get around those, apparently. Who would have thunk? By 1985, Sconce displayed his sick sense of humor with a vanity plate on his Corvette that read, I burn for you. I can't. During this time, by 1985, coastal cremations employees were zipping up and down the coast, shoving bodies packed in cardboard into the back of company vans and station wagons. Between 1985 and 1986, coastal cremations' gross income from cremations would top over a million dollars. However, the multiple cremations, the thousands upon thousands of burning bodies that were happening, right, that was going on, actually the money-making scheme that came second to Sconce's, to in Sconce's lineup of favorite fucking black market gigs, right? Um, his favorite thing was yanking gold teeth as his employees quickly found out when david talked about quote making the pliers sing popping chops or going to the mine he meant extracting gold-filled teeth from cadavers ugh at Pasadena, at Pasadena Crematorium, it was standard operating procedure to examine the incoming bodies for gold. Normally, David did the job himself. As the bodies came in, he would take a screwdriver, trigger warning, I know, copy and paste, and pry open the mouths, searching for a gleaming molar. If he spotted the precious metal, he whipped out a pair of pliers and extracted the tooth or teeth, placing them in a container. Sometimes it was a styrofoam cup or an empty soda can because it was run by a fucking frat bro, a narcissistic sociopathic frat bro. Occasionally, oh, oh, I can't even. Occasionally, the cadaver's jaws would be locked shut very tightly. So David would force the cadaver's mouth open with a screwdriver or a crowbar. I can't even, I can't even imagine doing that to a human, but I really can't. Like, I don't care how much, you know, you might work around, like if you're a doctor, right, um, paramedic, firefighter, like you see, unfortunately, dead bodies all the time. But like this shit is like another level of apathy. Like it's nuts. Nuts, nuts, nuts. The fact that David was extracting the teeth was far from secret around the funeral home and crematorium. He frequently joked about it. Of course he fucking did. He himself bragged that in 1985 and 1986, he was making five to $6,000 a month from the enterprise. It was so productive that the employees at the Burbank Gold Exchange Company he usually dealt with, so he's really selling out in fucking palm chops, right? They called him the, quote, digger. Mm-hmm. Right. People have tried to estimate, guesstimate how much he really made off of these gold fillings, off these gold teeth. Um, someone 
wrote something and said, okay, in theory, okay, if half the bodies David cremated in 1985 and 1986 contained just one gold crown, which at the time gold crowns are very popular, he could have reaped in as much as $280,000 from his extraction program from pawning the shit off at pawn shops. But, you know, it doesn't stop there. Of course, it doesn't stop there because his second favorite side business, okay, behind the gold teeth and above the fucking burning bodies um, was, was absolutely going to be the tissue banks, the banks for tissues. That was going to be his way to make a big buck, which is another fancy fun way of saying fucking selling body parts and organs and tissue and flesh. Okay? Obviously. In July of 1986, David, along with his parents, mind you, okay, his mommy and daddy, his church going choir singing bitches, okay, were absolutely in on it. I know, shock and awe, right? They were fucking in on it. They were literally ripping out the gold teeth with him and then like going to fucking Sunday school because that's that's what that's about. Um, Yeah, they decided, oh my God, let's do a side gig. Let's do a side hustle. Let's start the Coastal International Eye and Tissue Bank. Let's just get another business license. And in California, we'll be like, period, here you go. Because tissue donations require the consent of the next of kin, David's mother, Lori Ann, okay, this little snaky bitch, was in charge of getting the deceased family members to sign the proper paperwork. Or sometimes trick them into signing the paperwork, duh. And if they refused, they'd just forge, forge the signatures anyway. So like it really wasn't a big deal. I mean, David is not, David is not worried. Like he is depraved. And he's sticking to it for sure. As with most laws, right, David found a loophole, as he always fucking does. While an organization might be prohibited under federal law from buying or selling organs, they are permitted to charge, I mean, at least at this time, they're permitted to charge a fee to recoup their costs in collecting whatever organ they gave. So whatever fee that they're getting, okay, like they like hand over a heart, for example, or a lung, they're not paying, they're not being paid for the lung. They're being paid for the cost of them to harvest the lung. But like, what's the fucking difference? You know I mean, so same shit, same fucking shit. Um, and also he could just like jack up his prices, duh, like what the fuck? Um, yeah. So he started doing that, but like all of his employees basically testified that, yeah, he he had us using crowbars, screwdrivers, pliers, or any other common hardware tool that we had handy to extract the organs that they that we plan to sell. Like, beyond. Later in court, it was ultimately revealed that over a three-month period, David Sconce and his crematoria clusterfuck had sold 136 brains at about $80 each, 145 hearts, $95 each, and 100 lungs, $60 each, for use in medical schools without the informed proper consent of the loved ones or even sometimes like not even like consent at all, right? They didn't even like trick them into signing. They just forged their signature. Because they're good people. They're church-going people. They're God-fearing people. Like, really? Because you're not going to meet him. You're going downstairs. You're going downstairs, girlykins. Like, entire family. Going down. 
during this time as well, as you know, business is booming, his employees who are really just the best people in the world, right? Really great, awesome peeps who are down to do this kind of work. They would call him names like Captain Cremator and quote, Little Hitler. Oh, yeah. Like the most deranged. That's why I'm like all of these employees who are testifying later. I'm like, y'all deserved a rot. Like for sure. This was diabolical. Diabolical shit. Okay, diabolical. You might be wondering at this point, obviously, why in the Frick Frack Patty Whack did they not get caught? What was the vibe there? What was the moment? What was the issue? They didn't get caught. I think because it's the 80s, who the fuck got caught doing anything? And and at the time, California only had two state inspectors in the entire state in overseeing the funeral and crematorium industry at the time. Because who needs overseers for that really low risk, not potentially traumatizing and hiding very horrible crimes type of industry. Um, Yeah, it also helped that David Sconce basically employed many of his old football buddies, everyone who punched drywall in their spare time. Yeah, he was employing them as muscle, not just to transport bodies, but also to literally threaten, intimidate, and in some cases, physically assault anybody who tried to who tried to get in the path of David's business. And that included, quote unquote, rival funeral home directors. Like this was like an entire shtick, right? It was like funeral home directors were like getting in on his territory, ter- territory for like collecting the corpses. And he was like, think again what the fuck? It was anarchy. It was anarchy. It was lawless, literally lawless in fucking Pasadena, California. Who would have fucking thought? The first time that we, I think, kind of know of-ish, it was August 1984. David's business was booming. He was vibing. He was having a great, jolly good time. Um, And David approached one of his employees named Edward, okay, one of his very regular lackeys he would become for sure. And Basically, David told him, hey, look, there's another mortician in the area, in the neighborhood who's giving me some trouble, right? That mortician, that man was named Ron Hast. And basically, he as a fun side hobby because, you know, he's he enjoys his industry, right? The same way that like I'm an attorney and I have chat about legal bullshit. Uh, Yeah, Ron Hast, cute little Ron Hast, published an industry newsletter. How adorable. Okay. Every month about about the industry and he apparently because he hadn't really you know heard the rumors about david being like a super violent temper heavy man he was threatening to expose david and his parents for performing multiple cremations now mind you okay mind you you're gonna hear that this is gonna be a theme the whole him performing multiple cremations like in one furnace was like obviously the tip of the fucking iceberg. You know what I mean? Like we're, uh, me and you are looking at each other right now, like through this fucking screen and going, really? Like go on. You know what I mean? What about the gold teeth? What about the flesh? You know, black market sales? Like what about all this other, but like forging people's names and document, whatever. No, 
that was the only fucking thing that people knew about until the World War II veteran called up the fire chief and was like, I smell trouble, literally. Within the, quote, funeral home community, they said they were whispering that David was cremating more than one buddy at a time, which, at you know, at that point, everyone apparently was running a fucking clean, tip-top shaped ship, okay, in the funeral home, com- in the funeral home com, Mooney. And that was like, that was obscene. They were like, wow, which yes, it is obscene. Of course it's obscene. Like I'm not saying it's any less, right? It's not any less horrible, but it's just like at least, you know, we can like go to sleep a little calmer at night knowing that at least everyone else in the funeral home community during this very lawless, unregulated fucking time, they were at least aghast. Like they were like, what the fuck? It wasn't like, a oh, everyone was just tagging along. I can only hope. And also they were pissed, right? They were pissed at him. He's charging $55 a body because he's doing it in like the most bulk-ass Costco, Amazon, Jeff Bezos-ass way, okay? And they're like, well, we're charging way more because we actually give a shit and we're taking care of these bodies and doing them one at a time that we're supposed to and like giving them people's, giving people ashes that are actually the ashes of the person that they love. Like, can you imagine, like, you know what I mean? Like, sue me. Like, can you imagine? They were losing money fast because he was he was just you know taking all their biz after david heard that this guy um ron Hass was going to potentially expose him in his fun newsletter he pulled his employee what's his face edwards to the side and he's like hey my man um if i paid you some cashamundo would you go beat this guy up would you go rough him up for me I'll pay you $800. Also, just to throw in a two-for-one special, when you do it, can you please also beat up his friend, Steven, Steven Nims? Thank you so much. Like, just like catching strays. Like, just everybody. And of course, because he's hiring fucking morons, fucking idiots, fucking assholes. Edwards was like, yeah, probably, yeah, but I probably need some help. So, of course, he like, you know, he's now he's recruiting Whatever. So Edwards and his roommate, okay, recruits his fucking roommate named Andre. Who fucking cares? They basically get the address of Ron Hast and and Stephen Nims's place, okay, from David. They go to knock on their door. They answer. We just want to make sure this is the right guy. And so they just like left, right? I think they just chickened out, to be honest. Like, I think they just chickened out. I honestly think maybe they were like sizing this guy up. Who fucking knows? Okay, this is like terrifying, but also like the three fucking stooges. Imagine these dumb fucking assholes driving around going, do you think we need one more guy? Yeah, sure. To beat up two fucking grown ass people. Like, holy shit. Who are like funeral, right? Who who in the funeral home community is like packing? Apparently a lot of people. Like, apparently people are like, maybe they're huge buff guys. I don't know. It just seems like a very like old person, gentle, kind, demure industry. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm out of it. Look, well, now I'm in it. Now I'm fucking in it. Basically, Edwards and his roommate, Augustine, and then another fucking moron, they gather, okay, they gather like little little rats, and they decide to hatch a plan, which anytime you hear three stupid men in a room say, let's, I have a plan, or, oh, you hear that they just hatched a plan, Get out of the get out of the immediate area, the immediate vicinity, buckle your seatbelt, put on a helmet, get under a table, some coverage, right? Stay away from the windows because something's about to happen and it's going to be the most audacious shit you've ever either heard or seen or experienced, okay? Never in my life have I ever heard of a group of men in a room hatching a plan, okay, And it didn't involve a nuclear bomb, a submarine at the Titanic, 
or sexual harassment. Like, let's call that what it is, okay? Please. Um, that's so rude. Not all men are not. Come on. I'm not literally saying that every man in the entire world. Not all men, but definitely you. Definitely this fucking guy. These fucking dudes. I'll tell you that much. Not all men, but definitely these fucking guys. So, so essentially, they hatched this fucking dumb fucking plan, okay, where they're going to go drive to the toy store. I'm assuming it's Toys R Us. Who cares? To buy a fake police badge, pretend like they're cops, um, to try to draw them out of the house. Why is that always involved? I don't know. Like, is that it's not original, you guys? Like, it's so cliche. Let's get a little more ridge. Let's update it. Like, why not a zookeeper? Like, why not suit up to be a Chick fil A worker? Like, I don't understand why the cop thing is such a huge. Like, are you thinking, oh, like more likely they'll answer? But I'm like, if a zookeeper knocked on my door, I'd fucking answer. I'd be like, where's the snow leopard? Is he in my apartment? Like, what are the vibes? You know what I mean? But that's just me. And so they do that. But then at the last minute, when they're about to leave their like house after they get their dumb fucking badges, Edwards is like, oh my God, I have such a good idea. He whips out this squirt bottle that was made to resemble a flashlight. I don't know if he bought it. I don't know if he made it. Who really knows? He went into the kitchen and started dumping liquids into the device, like a squirt gun. Okay, squirt gun situation looks like a flashlight. Look, there are a lot of elements. There's a lot of layers here. Just some of the things that he was throwing into this flashlight were ammonia, vinegar, jalapeno juice. The three, right, three main food groups. Ow. Like, right? What the fuck? I'm like, this sounds like what five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds would imagine jumping someone to be. Like, they're like, let's spray him with jalapeno. Like, fuck you guys. You're so obnoxious. My new shirt. What the fuck? I'd be so pissed. Yeah. So they go. Uh, They go across town, get in the car, go across town with their dumb fucking squirt guns and their badges to the Hollywood Hills where, where Host and Nims live. They go to the door. They open the door. They produce the badge. They claim that they're, you know, they're investigating them. They're policemen. You know, they're investigating a hit and run. It was like a whole, they had a whole shtick, whole story. They, and then, you know, they get them into the garage apparently. And then one of them yells now, like it's a bad scene at a community theater. And they end up beating them. They're fighting back and stuff. I mean, it's, you know, two against three, but like, goddamn, you guys, like this is such pussy shit like if you can't go one-on-one with people regardless don't assault don't batter but like this is the epitome of you fucking fools like I have I'm just like you fucking out like fuck you guys the funeral home community were the tough guys of it congratulations no one gives a fuck um yeah so then they beat them they go back david says hey how how was it how was how was your trip and they were like it was amazing and he gives them twelve hundred dollars and told him to split it after that incident okay host and his roommate nims were they survived okay they weren't they were okay they were obviously beaten but they were okay no life-threatening injuries um but they host essentially with his adorable newsletter, I was like, you know what? I've decided that my business is going to be minded on my own. Like, I'm good. I am good. This was fun, fun adventure. But the jalapeno sauce in my fucking eyeball straight to the fucking retina kind of got me thinking that maybe it's not really worth it. I don't really give a shit about this guy named David. He made no more threats after this incident where he was literally beaten and jumped by three people. 
um, made no more threats about exposing David or his parents. And yeah, he just shut his mouth. But like, this is my thing. And this is what's true is that the rumors were already spreading. Everyone was already talking. Everyone already had chat about your dumb fucking funeral home, stacking the bodies on top of each other. Like they're beating up one guy isn't going to stop it. Okay. Everyone runs their mouth. And then, okay, after Host, who's like victim number one, right? Host and Nims. Then we have Tim Waters. Okay. Tim Waters. And Tim Waters was, was a man who was operating a cremation service, just like David. Okay, so he's a competitor. Okay, I'm setting the fucking scene. But David and Tim's businesses differed in one in one very big respect. Okay, one very key respect. And that is that Tim Waters didn't have a crematorium of his own, nor did he have a funeral home. He had a storefront in Burbank with a couple of desks and a phone, which is giving very much like the Dollar Tree to David Sconce's like sharper image, right? Well, the alleged sharper image. And then you peek behind the curtain and you realize everything's a fucking, you know, shit show. His service was strictly that of a middleman. He would literally collect bodies for a fee and then drive them to a crematorium that he didn't own or anything um, and then return the remains to his client. So he's just literally the Uber driver of of this situation. He was definitely like a little sad, right? He was just kind of like a little annoyed. So he was pissed about what David was doing um, and how much property he was making. And so obviously... Um, he's gonna absolutely try and convince all of David's clients that Pasadena Crematorium is is acting illegally, okay? And hope that they would react by retracting their business from our boy David Sconce, David Scoohoo, and give it to him. Give it to our boy Tim, Tim Waters. Um, and you know, Tim didn't have proof at that time that David was doing all this illegal shit, but like even if what he was saying was completely just because he was trying to be petty, you were spot on, Tim. Good job. Nice work. Like, you really hit the nail on the head. I also think putting two and two together, if you're someone in the business, like, if I heard of someone being like, oh, like, I'm charging for my legal services, like, $10 an hour, I'm, like, going to turn around and be like, so your your legal fees are probably, like, you're probably bad at your job. I know how much, you know, it takes to, like, live and breathe and, and also, like, how much it takes to, like, spend the time to, like, perform the legal work that you need to and how much time that really takes. And that's why it costs the amount of time it costs. I'm sure he's thinking the $50, $55 Groupon for a fucking cremation. This motherfucker is stacking those bodies. Like, no, cho- no fucking chance. Like I told you, the shit's cutthroat. Okay, whatever. But the difference with Tim is that Tim was kind of razzing David a little face to face. Like I know um, our previous newsletter boy was like maybe it was like, you know, I'm going to write about you once. And he got his ass beat. Tim was like chatting. He was like, hurt, hurt your shits beat as hell. And David was like, what the fuck was that? And he's like, nothing. What do you mean? He was taunting him. And and, you know, not not a, not a, not great. Not great for Tim. David, obviously a hothead and a, and a piece of shit and obnoxious and a man who has a complex um he is insecure as fuck and he's like i'm not gonna let a man like tim waters intimidate me by then early in 1985 david had had since taken complete control of pasadena crematorium previously he you know was operating it like under you know like under his grandparents whatever the fuck but he had made it official by signing a lease with his mother and renaming the business coastal coastal cremation incorporated so in the two plus years that he'd been running the operation, it had been prosperous. He was vibing. He was thriving. And he was going to corner the cremation market. He was going to ship in bodies, drive in bodies from all over the fucking state. So one day, obviously, you know what's coming. Okay, Tim has more chat and David has more money. 
In early 1985, David pulled our boy Edwards, the fucking jalapeno fucking buffoon, aside and asked him if he's interested in another job, right? And Edwards knew exactly what he meant by that. He was like, okay, I'm, I'm, do I have to get my badge out now or later? And he's like, that's so cheesy. Um, when Edwards asked David who the victim was going to be this time, David said it was a guy in Burbank who, like Haston Nims, was threatening to make trouble. His name was Tim Waters. If Edwards agreed to take care of him, he would pay him $800. David added that Waters Waters was a, quote, real fat guy. And Edwards would have no trouble handling him. This is not, these aren't my opinions, obviously. Being being a fat person is not a crime. It's a state of being. And you are, exist in this world just as much and are valued just as much as everyone and should be valued just as much as everyone. Don't, like, do I have to get into the spiel? Please don't take this the wrong way. I'm literally just describing what David Fuckface said, okay? Because Tim Waters admittedly was diagnosed as morbidly obese at this time. He was a very, very large, like I think he was like over 300 pound short stocky man, which like is fine. That's my thing too is I'm like, David, if you really, if you're trying to like sweeten the deal for Edwards to do this, do, do your dirty work, why wouldn't you just – like if you think that he's really that easy to take, then you go do it. I hate a man who just can't do his own fucking work. You know what I mean? Like, please. This is this is how loosey-goosey with his lips that David was, okay, about like – like the reason why we know all of this, like the reason why I'm able to recount like literally like a timeline day by day and each person that you talk to is because like – you you employ people who are dirty. They're going to rat on you. Like, obviously, they're going to be the first ones to get on the stand for a fucking plea deal. They were the ones involved in this shit. Pick your people. Pick your co-conspirators. Oh, my fucking God. Okay, we'll get to it. But like, please. And and obviously, right? Obviously, these people are going to say whatever the fuck they need to say to make sure that they don't get in trouble. They're going to try to skew it as greatly as they can in their favor. So imagine the version I'm giving you is like the version that we learn firsthand from these people. This was their like best case scenario. Like this makes me look good version. Like you're kidding. The jalapeno juice, dude. For real. So so apparently David goes to to Waters to do this shit. And then he or sorry, David goes to Edwards to, to beat up Tim Waters, okay, for $800. And Edwards ends up swindling him. Apparently, he like drove by his house with his friend and like didn't feel up to like doing the whole kit, kit, and caboodle, like the whole routine, right? Like he wasn't ready to perform at that time. So he just drove back and said, We beat him up and then got the 800. David never let on that he like knew that he was swindled, whatever. But then a few months later, Tim Tim Waters kept running his mouth. So I think he maybe got an inkling that maybe Edwards wasn't the one for the job, right? So he asked one of his other employees named Danny Galambos. Galambos enlisted his weightlifting buddy named Christopher Long. And they drove over to Tim Waters's office for for $1,000. Okay, that's it that they'd have to split to to beat up Tim Waters to keep him quiet. And they did do that. And they beat him savagely. Horrible, horrifying, um, especially knowing it was two against one, especially knowing that Tim was a bigger guy. Like, that's annoying and horrible. They broke his nose. But other than that, it was bruises. It was, it was a bad experience. But, like, he was okay. Even though Tim Waters literally took a beating – Tim didn't even keep it secret that he thought he was attacked as part of a scheme to shut him up. He was like, 
I'm telling everybody, he was walking around town, funeral home community, chat lines, being like, guess who fucking paid motherfuckers to beat me up? Like he he had an, like he knew. He was like, shut the fuck up. So he didn't give a shit. He was like, whatever, like you're trash. You can imagine David's probably pretty perturbed, pretty pissed because he wants people to be scared of him. And Tim's like, just clearly not. But Tim's fine. Until, until he wasn't. And less than two months later, after he was beaten up and after it didn't work, on Easter weekend in 1985, Tim Waters suddenly dropped dead. Yeah. His initial cause of death was assumed to be connected to the fact that he was very heavy. Um, they, you know, were thinking it was like a heart issue, something to that, to that effect. It wouldn't be until two years later after David Sconce is arrested, which I'll tell you about, that Dr. F. Warren Lovell, a medical examiner and coroner in Ventura County, discovers that a toxicology report was not done on the fluids and tissues taken from Tim Waters' body. On April 20th, 1988, okay, three years after Tim died, a Pennsylvania toxicologist, Dr. Frederick Riders, who had been asked to examine Waters' tissue, reports that he found a fatal concentration of oleandrin in Waters' specimen thereby confirming the prosecution's belief that Waters was murdered. Because at this point, our boy Sconce was in the fucking can, and the prosecutors had some inklings, right? They were People were chatting at him, and they also had talked to his employees, etc. And his employees had basically heard him say, you know, talk about Tim Waters, joke about him, slander him after he died, and saying, and, and he let it slip at one point that, oh, he had slipped something in his drink. Allegedly. Allegedly, he said that. So there's that, okay? But I'll get to that in a minute, okay? We're going to back it up again. Go back. We were just at 1985. Tim Waters has passed. Now we're at 1986, November 23rd, okay? Everything was going great. The tissue biz, the gold teeth biz, the body burning biz, stacking bodies, cutting people's everything out and off, okay, selling organs, intimidating people, having really stupid, dumb, former wannabe jocks beat people up in your spare time. Things are going great for David Sconce until they weren't, okay? At the height of the vibe, on November 23rd, 1986, the crematorium in Pasadena caught fire after two employees tried to break the company record ew by putting 19 bodies in each furnace it is believed that the fire was the result of the bodies being packed in there so tight that it clogged the chimney Ugh. bear in mind that these furnaces the inside of these furnaces were only slightly larger than a phone booth Okay, like reminder, fun reminder. And the world record for the number of live people, live people stuffed into a phone booth of that size is only 14. So like imagine the things that they were doing to these bodies to get them in. It's just, uh, I can't, I just, 
it makes me sick. It makes me ill and sick. And these people are sick, 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 twisted fucks. Hate it. So obviously you would think, oh, okay, the fire did did them in, right? They're meant to be out of business. Like that's it. Cut the cameras. But you know how this ep started. So absolutely not. This nightmare is not over. David Sconce, okay, fire. He saw his shit go up in flames. He was like, good thing I have plan B, bitch. He secretly sets up a plan B new crematorium about 70 miles away in Hesperia, California, which worked out even better for him at the time because he didn't even need to operate under a crematorium license. Oh, no, he didn't. No one in the funeral home commune, you know what I mean, in the chat box, in his chat community, knew where it was. Like, no one knew, so no one could, like, bother him and talk shit about him, whatever. He operated the new business under the license of a ceramics factory. Yep, as you know. Because that's what the massive diesel-fueled kilns he was using there were designed for. Like, oh my fucking God. Another part of his cover story for the ceramics factory in Hesperia was that they were using the ovens to make heat shield tiles for the space shuttle, which sounds so Elon Musk of him. Do you know what I mean? Like that, like this is the same. I'm telling you, cut from the same, like do a D- 23. I want to see the 23 and me of this motherfucker because that's what it sounds like. You know what I mean? People who like are so convinced that they're innovators or just like bullshitting their way through life. Like I guarantee this motherfucker probably would have popped out a few fucking tiles and been like, throw them on the space shuttle. And someone who just is convinced by a condescending white guy talking in a fast tone, right? With a gold watch on is like, I'm going to do it. Wouldn't be surprised. Um, Yeah. Bodies were cremated there in mass as they were for over two months until January 1987 when, of course, as we know, a neighbor called in to the assistant fire chief over all of the horrible smoke the furnaces were belching out 24-7. Well, after, okay, our assistant fire chief rolled up um, and said, what the fuck? My shoes are sticking to what now? Fire, fire burning foot out of the furnace. What now? Um, he was obviously, David Sconce was obviously arrested along with his parents and charged with a litany of, of things. What you're going to realize in the cases that I'm about to read from for you, most recent in 2021, like I told you, there are a, a laundry list of charges that are, that are filed against Sconce. And one part of them is the murder conspiracy line of charges. And another part is the funeral home charges. So like the court literally like calls them that because it splits them up easily. The murder conspiracy situation that formed the basis for the charges. I haven't told you about that yet. Okay. I skipped over it. It was like in the 1980, whatever, 80s. But like it's more fun when you read it from the court side. So we're reading it then. So. In 1988, Sconce was charged in the funeral home case with multiple counts of mishandling and unlawful disposition of human remains, assault by means likely to produce great bodily injury, robbery, conspiracy related to various of the foregoing charges, 
theft, bribery of witnesses, solicitation of perjury, and solicitation of three murders. Wow, I can't speak. Specifically, Sconce was charged with 28 counts of unlawful removal body part, removal of body parts from human remains, three counts of mutilation of human remains, two counts of multiple cremation of human remains, two counts of commingling human remains, one count of failure to enter human remains within a reasonable time, two counts of a conspiracy to mishandle human remains, assault by means likely to produce, da, da, da. like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, there's a, like a list, like a long list, obviously. Okay. His parents too. Okay. That got fucked. Good. I'm glad. Fuck you, Jerry. In 1989 though, okay, separate and apart from that, because like, right, it's kind of like the more the merrier. We're just tacking on the charges as we go as he's in jail awaiting trial for the 1998 bullshit. He was charged in 1989 in the murder conspiracy case for conspiracy to murder someone named Ellie Estefan. Sconce allegedly asked a crematorium employee to murder Estefan, the estranged husband of Sconce's brother-in-law's girlfriend, in order to obtain life insurance proceeds. Like, he's keeping it in the family, that's for sure. Okay, that's for fucking sure. In the meantime, okay, all these trials were going on. We're related to, like, the body, human remains, all these counts, right? And the conspiracy to, mur- to commit murder for, like, the random person that I just introduced to you, okay? In 1990, finally, a capital murder charge was also filed against David Sconce in Ventura County for the murder of Tim Waters. That charge, though, ultimately, unfortunately, was eventually dismissed because Sconce, in addition to conspiring to murder the prosecutor on that case, he basically, like, petitioned some of his jailmates to, like, hey, like, who can I call to, like, get someone fucking whacked? Like, literally, that kind of cliche, obvious shit. Um, He tried to solicit people to murder the prosecutor who was trying to kill him or trying to obviously prosecute him um and then his attorney had found like a toxicologist to say that the the report of that guy saying oh this you know poison was in this thing was was not good whatever and they didn't have any they had like no other evidence the prosecutor ends up dropping the charges okay i don't think the prosecutor dropped the charges because he was threatened i think the prosecutor it honestly sounds like the prosecutor was like bring it on bitch like you can't kill me like you can't kill me bitch um but it, it just seemed like they didn't have enough evidence which like fair but it just like you know you can just imagine like there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts going on okay this motherfucker had his hand in every, fucking everything okay but the judge in the funeral home charges case okay with all the body you know the mishandling charges and stuff and then the initial like conspiracy murder charge the trial court judge named judge smirling was like the biggest idiot of all time he didn't know what the fuck he was doing he was violating every fucking and i don't even know or think it's because like he was trying to help sconce out i literally think he's just like an idiot Based upon what he did, it sounds like someone gave him a gavel that day and was like, try to do what you think you would do. And he's like, okay, let me just like improv. For example, okay, Judge Smerling in 1989 negotiated a plea agreement without the prosecutor's okay, like without the prosecutor's agreement, in which Sconce would plead guilty to 21 of the charges in the funeral homes case. Mind you, remember the charges that I was listing off, like heinous, heinous shit, right, of mishandling mutilation of bodies, okay? The judge, without any power to do this, he negotiated for him to plead guilty to 21 charges in exchange for only five years, a five-year sentence. That's it. And at the time, what blows my fucking mind is that other counts 
that he could have pled guilty to in the funeral home case were also being reviewed in a separate appeal. The trial court judge, with respect to the murder conspiracy case, set aside the charge for murder conspiracy on the theory that Sconce had withdrawn from the conspiracy, okay, in 1991, which we're going to get to because we got to know what it means to withdraw from a conspiracy. So it's like it's giving very much like Smirling, like, why are you even do- like, dude, like what? Like it beyond. Judge Smirling apparently stated that if those counts or the murder conspiracy count were ultimately returned to the trial court and Sconce pled guilty to them, the court would impose no additional prison or jail time, but would impose probation. For why? Like, what? Like, it's just like, like, if any attorneys are listening, they're probably like, what in the entire fuck? Like, they're literally like a judge pinky swearing based on something that hasn't even happened yet. Like, oh, don't worry. Like, this is what we're going to do. Like, on the record, I'm like, be corrupt and bribey, like, behind closed doors. You know what I mean? This was literally on, like, the transcript. The court's, like, cloning from the transcript. The appellate court, who was like, what the fuck are you doing? Bonkers. So, obviously, okay, according, Sconce was like, period, and then pled guilty to 21 charges in the funeral home case, okay? So, so obviously, right, after this court, or the appellate court, reverse the order like setting aside the charge for the murder conspiracy case because they were like smirling sterling whatever your name is that was dumb like conspiracy murder that shit is still on um the prosecutor obtained an order disqualifying judge smirling period the 1989 plea bargain was set aside on the ground that it was unauthorized because judge smirling had lacked jurisdiction to make the bargain because the murder conspiracy charge was on on appeal at the time and it was not a proper subject for a plea bargaining agreement pursuant to penal code section whoever the fuck right sconce then appealed that okay there's think about all the moving parts like please okay moving parts sconce appealed that saying oh no link you shouldn't set aside the plea bargain whatever ultimately he filed that order okay like petition it was like a writ petition for habeas corpus so it was in federal court okay if you listen to the guantanamo bay episode you know that you'd be in federal court for that and in august 1996 in sconce versus garcetti okay the ninth circuit did actually order specific performance of the plea bargain they reasoned that although judge smirling had lacked authority to make the plea bargain the district attorney delayed the prosecutor delayed until Sconce had completed or substantially completed his five-year prison term before moving to set it aside. So basically saying like, if you wanted this, like if you actually didn't want this to be a thing, then like you fucked up, like prejudicial delay, essentially. You can't just wait around until it's convenient for you to like file these things and set aside a plea bargain. So like, you know, as always, we say a cab and we say fuck the prosecutor. Hmm, they fucked it up. So, so yeah, so the plea bargain was in, in, in place. So that means that, you know, what they, the Ninth Circuit ruled that in 1996. He, uh, made the plea bargain, um, in 1989. So yeah, uh, that would mean if y'all can count, it's been seven, six years, seven years. It's been seven years since he made that plea bargain. So like that motherfucker is, is done with his sentence with respect to all of those 8,000, up to 12,000 bodies that he had burned. Fuck Judge Smirling. Is he out of his mind? Like, literally what? Like, that's nuts. That's just nuts to me, right? Like, I'm all for, like, reform of the prison system and shit, but just, like, on principle, look, the fucking charismatic, mildly attractive white boys with blue eyes really, really just, they all have hard-ons for them. I'm telling you, everyone in the fucking justice system, I don't get it. I don't. I don't get it. 
So um, on April 29th, 1997, after the Ninth Circuit's ruling, basically reinstating the plea bargain, Sconce appeared in Los Angeles County Superior Court before a different judge. Sconce pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder in the murder conspiracy case, admitted one overt act, and was placed on lifetime probation. He was then released. He was released for the first time since 1987, since he had been captured. But um, yeah, he was released in 1997. You know what I mean? Like, holy shit. That's it. Released on a lifetime probation. And not only was he released on lifetime probation, oh no, he um, lived in several other states and was supervised there. Like literally they let him jet set. Like he was allowed to walk around. He All he did was check in with his probation officer by mail. Like it was a fucking Lucy goosey system. As if like the crimes that he didn't plead guilty for or two weren't like violent. Like I'm sorry, like what the fuck? Uh, in approximately 2011, you guys, this guy was out and about. Like literally around the world. You might have bumped into him at the fucking grocery store, like at the fucking gas station. You might have held the door open for him at a fucking Dunkin' Donuts. Like, I don't think you guys understand. That's why like I've been like jittering about this because I'm literally like, bruh, like massive bruh. And I had never heard about this case. Like, why doesn't everyone talk about it? Oh, I don't know. Probably because it's touchy subjects. I don't fucking know. But this motherfucker, people were breathing in other people's ashes for literally years in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles. And this motherfucker was walking around from 1997 until 2011. At least 2011. Like, and, and, a lot, and literally the court's like, he lived in several other states. Like, I can't even tell you what states he lived in. Like, bruh. But of course, in approximately 2011, um, Sconce pled guilty to a federal firearms offense in Montana. Like, come fucking on, man. Montana, like, be so fucking for real. He apparently stole his neighbor's gun. He's the fucking worst. Like, I, bruh, bruh. So as a result, okay, he was returned to California. Okay, his probation was revoked. And on May 6, 2013, Judge Dorothy L. Shubin imposed the mandatory term, finally, imposed the mandatory term of 25 years to life in prison on the murder conspiracy charge. After he had enjoyed his dumb, stupid, beat-ass life for already however many years. Like, that's obscene. What was the murder conspiracy case that they got him for? Well, I'll tell you. The prosecutor filed in 1990 a, an indictment charging defendant and respondent David Wayne Sconce with conspiracy to commit murder. The trial court, okay, Judge Smurfuck, okay, our Smurfette, he set aside this this indictment saying, oh no, Sconce, David Sconce had effectively withdrawn from the conspiracy. So he can't be charged with, with conspiracy. Like it's like fine. And then the appellate court was like, bet, that's stupid. Here's an order for you. And now it's like citable case law. Cool. This case involves Sconce's alleged formation of a conspiracy to kill Ellie Estefan. In 1985, Estefan and Cindy Strunk, Cindy, I'm just gonna call her Cindy, we're separated. This is 1985, okay? Think back, think back, think back, think back. This is like when Tim Waters was killed. Cindy testified she worked for her father, Frank Strunk, at his business, the Cremation Society of California. In the course of her duties at CSC, she met Sconce, whose family owned the Lamb Funeral Home and the Pasadena Crematorium. In 1985, Cindy met Sconce's brother-in-law, Brad Sallard, she and Sallard dated and began to live together in May 1985. 
When Estefan served divorce papers on Cindy in June 1985, Sconce offered her the services of the Lamb family funeral home's attorney because that's never a red fucking flag, right? Never let someone else's in-house, someone else's company's in-house counsel, like, oh, I'll lend him to you. Like, we're just like a passing pawn. Like, it's giving sketch. Okay, it's giving sketch. Sconce, David Sconce and Sallard, the Brad Sallard, the guy that she's dating, okay, Brad, accompanied Cindy to the first meeting with her lawyer. One of the assets she mentioned during this meeting, okay, with David in tow and Brad in tow, the lawyer there, was a $250,000 insurance policy on Estefan's life, her her ex-husband's life, which named her as beneficiary. So obviously, David's ears are perking. Okay, they're perking. At some point thereafter, Cindy argued with Estefan at the crematorium in front of Frank, Strunk, and others, including an LFH, they're calling it LFH, right? The Lamb Family Funeral Home. An LFH employee, John Polarana. Estefan allegedly chased Cindy and pushed her down the stairs. She was upset, but not hurt. Polarana, one of the employees of David, testified that in late summer of 1985, the day after the argument between Estefan and Cindy, Sconce, David Sconce, asked him, quote, if I gave you $10,000, would you get rid of Estefan? And the employee, Polarana, claimed, he testified that he just shook his head and walked away. And that was the end of the conversation. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm fucking sure. Okay. So at this point, David is soliciting some people, right, to be part of his conspiracy, right, his conspiracy to kill this guy that uh, that he's maybe seen once, right? And yes, like clearly a, an abuser, but like David, you know what I mean? Like you're with them, right? You guys are going to be bunking together in hell in the same fucking room. So gear up for that summer camp. Um, Paula Rana further testified that David did not like Esteban because he had slapped Cindy, which like I feel like it's just a cover, but I bear, I don't like him either, but like, come on, I think you're just an ass and you want the money. Paula Rana did not take Sconce's offer seriously, like his offer to kill this guy. However, two weeks later, Polarana had a conversation with Bob Garcia, another employee of David, in which Garcia said that David had also offered him $10,000 to kill Estefan. So basically, like, right, like I said, employ people who are going to keep their fucking mouth shut if you want to do a conspiracy. You know what I mean? Like, all these bitches are talking and chatting and then testifying about it in detail. Like, please, they're giving numbers and names. Like, they're comparing salaries for your fucking hit jobs. Like, come on. Like, they're unionizing. It's giving union, which is great, but, like, not so much if you want to stay out of jail. Polarana told Garcia, quote, I wouldn't do it. Of course, I'm sure he did. Like, whatever. I would love to know the real story as opposed to their filtered ass version. A few days later, Garcia showed Polarana the address to Estefan's house and Polarana drove Garcia there. Like, I love how they're like, well, I didn't really take the offer seriously. And then they're full on like staking out the location of Estefan's house to kill him. Like, you're joking. Garcia testified that he also worked for David. One day at the crematorium, David asked Garcia, quote, about someone being murdered and if I knew anyone who would do it. <laughs> do you, set, drop a line. Send me like a, a wreck, a referral. Sconce told him, quote, a friend wanted someone killed. The friend being literally David. <laughs> David offered Garcia $10,000 or $15,000 to commit the murder. So just like two different prices. I don't know. Garcia told Sconce he would either find someone to do it or that he would do it himself because David can't do anything himself. So he's having other people do it. In a telephone conversation a few days later, Sconce told Garcia that Estefan, quote, had a large insurance policy and he just wanted him murdered to collect the insurance money. But like, how would you be the one who's getting the proceeds? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, clearly, it's very obvious to me. Because like, like, I'm like, Sconce is not related to this person. Like, Estefan is like, he, okay, David is not even related to fucking Estefan. Like, not by blood, not by marriage, anything. Like, he, how, that's why I'm like, oh yeah, for sure. 
this lawyer and I think this chick were all in on it, okay, the LFH lawyer and shit, because like how else would everyone be benefiting from this fucking life insurance policy that apparently was only going to benefit our girl, Cindy? Do you know what I mean? She was the ex-wife. Look, we love, like this is what, hey, you guys, guess on the bar exam, does this look like a fucking conspiracy to you? Like, yeah, it fucking does. Like, connect the goddamn dots. <laughs> so, but we're not there yet. Hold on. Okay. I know you, I know all your law students are like, well, where's the act in furtherance? I'll get there. The elements of a conspiracy. Okay. Mind you, let me remind you conspiracy to commit an offense consists of the unlawful agreement of two or more persons to commit an offense. Okay. Two or more. And an overt act in furtherance thereof. The words overt act are the key here. It's always like the hardest element or like the most essential element to like prove because unlawful agreement, right? Again, doesn't have to be a written contract, doesn't have to, right? It's just like what, you know, them being like, will you kill him? Yeah, sure, I'll do it for 10. Like that's enough, right? That's enough. But two or more persons to commit an offense, so like a crime, it can be a litany of fucking things, okay? And an overt act in furtherance thereof, even though me and you could joke and have a gab um, about like, oh, I'll pay you 20 bucks to like kill this person. Yeah, no period. Da, 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 and we're kidding. Ha, ha, joke, laughter. Okay. Unless one of us actually does something, an overt act that actually progresses the conspiracy. Okay. Like brings it to the next level, like goes to the next fucking tile on Candyland. You know what I mean? Like you're making it to the fucking snow princess or whatever the fuck. Right. Like if you just stay at start, it's you can't be convicted of a conspiracy. But if you, you or anyone else in the fucking group, anyone else in the group, yep, anyone, even if they're doing it alone, anyone else in the group, if, if they commit the overt act, you, you can be liable for a conspiracy to commit that act, okay? Like, period. Because even if you don't commit the ultimate act, right? Even if, like, the actual, like, conspiracy to, like... Uh, steal a car or whatever the fuck, right like 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 grand theft auto whatever the fuck like if you like drove if one person in your little agreement drove to go stake out a place all y'all are fucked all y'all are fucked so think about that next time you want to agree to shit an overt act right and i know you're gonna be like well it doesn't have to be like overt act what does that mean okay an overt act can, does not need to be criminal in nature it doesn't have to be a crime. The overt act doesn't have to be something obvious like steal steal a car or get a gun or whatever. It can literally be like buying twine or like, you know, conspiracy to like illegally download music. It could be like downloading LimeWire. Like, like, you know what I mean? I know that's I'm making up shit, okay? But like that's what I mean is that the an actual overt act doesn't inherently have to be illegal in and of itself. Is downloading LimeWire illegal? Maybe. Okay, fine. I don't know, buying the water to waterboard someone. There you go. Buying water is not illegal. There you go. Um, yeah. Um, and also the overt act need not amount to an attempt to commit the offense, to commit the offense or to aiding and abetting. Okay. So like the overt act doesn't have to be inherently by itself something sketch. It can literally just be something that kind of helps out the crime in the end, right? Like maybe you got sunny D's for everybody maybe in preparation for like the bur burglary like that can literally be an overt act i kid you fucking not depending on the situation quote the conspirators must have the specific intent to agree or conspire and to commit the offense that is the object of the conspiracy so like that's why the joking thing you know couldn't really work out everyone in there okay everyone involved everyone who can be charged with conspiracy has to specifically intend like they have to agree and conspire 
And not only grins conspire together, like, oh, I, I want to be part of the club, but you also have to be part of the club knowing that you want to commit that offense, okay? The one thing about conspiracy is that the law wants to reward people who want to pull out, who want to chicken out, who want to get the fuck out, who want to withdraw, right? Because obviously, public policy, it's a good thing. Withdrawal, that's what it's called, withdrawal. Withdrawal is a defense to conspiracy, okay? Quote, once the defendant's participation in the conspiracy is shown, it will be presumed to continue unless he is able to prove as a matter of defense that he effectively withdrew from the conspiracy. Effectively, keyword. Withdrawal from or termination of a conspiracy is a question of fact. It has to be like an inner, right, like coming to Jesus moment, but also you have to be able to communicate it effectively and actually effectively have withdrawn. Like even if you're in a gang and you go to jail, like you you can still be part of conspiracy if like you didn't pull out mentally, emotionally, you know, the vibe. Withdrawal from a conspiracy requires, quote, an affirmative and bona fide rejection or repudiation of the conspiracy communicated to the co-conspirators. You cannot keep that shit secret. You got to be loud and proud, baby. You got to be like, hey, you guys, fuck this. I'm out. I don't want to do it. Like clear, 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 clear as day. Okay. A member of a conspiracy may effectively withdraw from it so as to exculpate himself from guilt for the future Wow, for the future criminal acts of his co-conspirators, okay? Future criminal acts, okay? The requirement of an overt act before conspirators can be prosecuted and punished is to provide an opportunity for the co-conspirators or conspirators to reconsider, terminate the agreement, and thereby avoid punishment for the conspiracy itself. Obviously, the inverse of this rule is true, and that is that once the overt act is committed by anybody in furtherance of the conspiracy, the crime of conspiracy has been completed and no subsequent action by the conspirator can change that. This is key. That's why the overt act is so important and the timing is so important. You better pull the fuck out before your friend buys the fucking Sunny D's for the fucking, you know, pregame meal before the fucking burglary and fills up gas in the car to use as a getaway car because that one fucking guy getting his fucking, you know, waking up early to do that before you have time to wake up at 8 a.m. and say, never mind, guys, I'm out, that you can be charged with a conspiracy. Right there. Even if you withdraw later. It doesn't matter. You already complete it. It's already done. Conspiracy doesn't have to, like, it doesn't matter. The, the thing that you're about to do and your ability to do it, no one gives a shit about that. They're like, you had no chance of like even completing that shit. Like you did your best and you all have the specific intent to do it. So suck to suck. Okay. That's what's at issue here. Very key. And I know I just explained to you all these facts, but like now we're going to jump back into the facts. Okay. Jump back in. So now you have that context. Now you have the rule that you're going to apply to the fucking facts. Okay. So we just heard that David's paying, you know, offering bitches. Okay, he's starting the conspiracy. He's offering people 10 grand, 15 grand. Okay, two of his employees at this point, da da da, whatever. Okay, and they're like, yeah, we're down. We're down for the get down. Um, and then you just heard me too say, oh, a few days after Sconce offered Garcia and Polarana, okay, 10K, 15K to kill Estefan, Garcia showed Polarana the address to Estefan's house 
and Paula Rana drove Garcia there. What does that sound like to you? I don't know. We'll see. So approximately one week later, David and Garcia went to a jack-in-the-box because that's where only crimes happen. You know what I mean? Like no one's hanging out at a jack-in-the-box to like shoot the shit. Like you are moving weight or you are conspiring. Like I have never eaten anything in a jack-in-the-box that wasn't something that came out of a very dreary lab. Like I'm doing my crimes at Taco Bell. I don't know about y'all, but that's not even an ad. I just like their fucking black bean crunch wrap. Okay. They went to a jack-in-the-box. Okay. David and Garcia across the street from Estefan's gas station. They sat next to the window and as they ate lunch, lunch, quote-unquote, like as if sconce used binoculars like a fucking ad, like just a nerd-ass fucking like boo. You know what I mean? Tomato, tomato. Like so lame. Use binoculars to point Esteban out to Garcia, right? Literally like, there he is. Don't these sound like overt acts to you? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Who am I? Who am I? David later gave Esteban's address to Garcia. One night shortly thereafter, Garcia and Polarana drove to Esteban's house. Okay? Like literally like things are happening. Okay? Things are happening. There's like carpool lanes being, being situated. There are shifts being taken, okay, to stake this place out. Garcia then contacted a new person named Herbert Dutton, an ex-convict, an ex-convict who lived next door to him about committing the offense. He's like, hey, do you want to like get in on this? Dutton agreed to, the jo- to do the job for five grand. He was like, I'm cheap, baby. I'm a Groupon coupon. I'll do it for five. That same night, Garcia and Dutton drove to Esteban's house. A lot of driving going on. On the way there, they discussed whether to blow up Esteban's car or shoot him on the freeway. They settled on the former because Dutton had, ex- had explosives and no one would have to pull the trigger. Yeah, fun fact, doesn't mean it's not murder. Lo siento. <laughs> doesn't make it less serious. Um, they intended to plant the bomb, run a wire to it from three houses away, and wait for Esteban. Conversations between David and Garcia about this were brief, but continued over a three-week period. David's like, give me the updates. David would ask Garcia, um, is he still walking today? And Garcia would say, oh, we're going to take care of it. Like we, he was using we, right? So, so check the language of your co-conspirators, okay? Because if they're using some we terminology, you might be fucked. You might be fucked. Approximately three weeks after David's initial conversation with Garcia, David, quote, just called it off. He said, just forget about it. Disregard doing it. Doesn't that seem so, even the way I just said it seemed like so random. You're like, wait, what? I'm sure, right? Like him on the stand, this motherfucker, like, okay, after three weeks, after this whole plan and after David definitely probably allegedly already killed people, had people beaten up. Oh, we just, yeah, no. Garcia testifies. Oh, yeah, you just like, we, he's like called it off. Mm-hmm, sure. Frank Strunk, who was Cindy's father, okay. Frank Strunk testified that sometime after the argument between, between Cindy and Estefan at the crematorium, he saw David Sconce and another person at the Jack in the Box across the street from CSC, from the crematorium, making gestures and looking at Estefan through binoculars. Like, make it more obvious. You know what I mean? That's why I was like, oh, maybe he was being like low-key about it. No, he wasn't. He was being a fucking annoying moron. Like, you're not in you're not in ex- Inspector Gadget. Like, chill. Frank Strunk went to the restaurant and asked David why he was watching Esteban. So he literally went there. He was like, bro, what? Scon said he was just pointing out the gas station. What's the problem? I was just pointing out the gas station. Like, that's what David said. Really? Okay. 
Frank Strong told Sydney about this incident. So like, yeah, Frank, Frank, her dad was like, hey, like, this seems sketchy. And Sydney was probably like, ha ha. That's what? So yeah, um, she testified, but like, I don't trust anything she fucking says. Because like, it does very much sound like she was part of this. Um, but like, allegedly, right? Allegedly. I'm not blaming anyone. Cindy testified that after speaking with her father, she confronted Sallard and asked him why Scons had been looking at as fun with binoculars, as if she doesn't know. Okay, whatever. Sallard, her boyfriend, made statements to her, which the trial court excluded as hearsay. However, after this conversation, Cindy feared for her life and left Sallard immediately. Sallard told her not to repeat their conversation, that no one would believe her, and that if she did repeat it, she would have to, quote, watch her back. So, remember, okay, our initial trash, dumb, stupid judge, okay, initially set aside okay the courts and or the prosecution's indictment for conspiracy to commit murder against david claiming that oh he withdrew from the conspiracy before an overt act was committed well in the indictment okay alleging conspiracy to commit murder the indictment asserted that there were six overt acts that had been committed okay in furtherance of the conspiracy between september 1st and 16th 1985 these acts consisted of one David pointing out Esteban at the Jack in the Box, like literally. Two, the use of binoculars to view Esteban. Three, Garcia's trip to the Esteban home with Prolorana. Four, the solicitation of Hunton, the, the ex-convict by Garcia. Five, Garcia's trip to the Esteban home with Hutton. And six, Sconce's inquiries of Garcia to, quote, take care of and kill Esteban. Like, it's giving over, it's giving act. Come on, okay? The judge set aside the indictment claiming, oh, no, no. He withdrew. David withdrew before an overact was committed. And uh, yeah, the prosecutor appealed. They were like, okay, let's see. So this is the court's order on appeal. Um, and I just read to you, obviously, what a conspiracy is and withdrawal, which again, like I said, withdrawal from conspiracy requires an affirmative bona fide rejection or repudiation of the conspiracy communicated to the co-conspirators. So yes, David's withdrawal, right? Like after the fact of him saying, cut the cameras never mind that's enough like that's a i'm not saying you didn't withdraw but like you withdrew from something that already happened you know what i mean like it's like getting off of a ride that's already complete like cool you went though like you definitely were on that coaster for sure like you got the full experience um you can be charged for conspiracy because it still counts (laughs) under california law withdrawal is a complete defense to conspiracy only if accomplished before the commission of an overt act duh 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 so The court says, what does the court say? The court says that even if it be assumed that David effectively withdrew from the conspiracy or, as Sconce argues, that the prosecutor conceded withdrawal before the trial court, withdrawal merely precludes liability for subsequent acts committed by the members of the conspiracy. Okay? The withdrawal does not relate back to the criminal formation of the unlawful combination. In sum... Conspiracy is complete upon the commission of an overt act. So, withdrawal, okay, because oftentimes when you write or charge with a conspiracy to commit something and then one person commits the thing, right, then all y'all are charged with both the conspiracy to commit the thing and the thing, right? So you can be charged with conspiracy to commit murder and murder. Both, both at the same time, right? Because they're two different crimes. Do you understand how they're two different crimes? And often when you're in a conspiracy, right, the reason why conspiracy matters is because you can be in a conspiracy to to like commit murder and then also be charged with the principal offense 
simply because you were involved in the conspiracy, right? And like didn't withdraw whatever. And like one person shot somebody. And you can potentially also be charged. Like you can be charged with a crime that was committed in furtherance of the conspiracy, even if the crime that you initially set out to do isn't the one that you isn't the one that was committed. So like, for example, if I we right all got together and wanted to um, rob a bank and we right were in a conspiracy to do that and I was in the getaway car and one of one of my buddies shot and killed a bank teller, I would be charged with I could be charged with murder. So I mean, because it's like in furtherance potentially. Does that make sense? Great. Amazing. So even though withdrawal from a conspiracy after the overt act is committed doesn't relieve you of liability for the conspiracy, like you can still be charged for conspiracy, what withdrawal can still do is relieve you of liability from the whatever crime is committed by like the people in the conspiracy. So like if um, I was driving the getaway car and like I dropped y'all off and that was the overt act, I like and then I skedaddled and then texted all of you in a group text that all of you saw and effective I effectively communicated and I was like, I'm out, I'm out. And then you killed someone, potentially I could get I could not be charged with like the the charges that would be in relation to that murder. But I could be still for sure charged with conspiracy to rob a bank. Does that make sense? Great. Amazing. Perfect. You guys are ready for the bar. Hmm. The court ruled that yeah, the crime of conspiracy is complete with the agreement and an overt act. No subsequent action can exonerate the conspiracy, the conspirator of that initial conspiracy crime. But, you know, even though our society is super down for people withdrawing from conspiracies, like we definitely want to like plug that. Um, the rule remains that withdrawal avoids liability only for the target offense. Okay. The target, the main one. So in this case, it would have been murder. Okay. Or for any subsequent act committed by a co-conspirator in pursuance of the common plan. Which again, you can be on the hook for. Even if a random fucking person in your dumb fucking plan decides to like, you know, steal someone's firearm in Montana and like your conspiracy was to like, you know, steal clothes from Fashion Nova, guess what? It doesn't even have to be related to the main thing that you were planning to do. Isn't that so insane? I know, right? So don't conspire. I don't like a group project. I don't know about y'all, but I love being alone when I do my work. So maybe, maybe let's like push that. You know what I mean? Like every man for himself. It's giving Hunger Games. You know what I mean? It's giving Hunger Games before. For sure. But like before you like join factions, like Hunger Games, if you weren't allowed to be friends with anyone. <laughs> so yeah, the court concluded that David's withdrawal from the conspiracy was not a valid defense to the to the completed crime of conspiracy. And uh, yeah, wasn't enough because he withdrew way after the fact. So in 1991, that was the um, Court of Appeal, California Court of Appeals ruling saying, yeah, um, he can still be charged with that shit. Uh, the judge in the lower court sucks. Smirling. It's no bueno. He was eventually, right, can disqualified from presiding over, over the case because he just wasn't doing a great job. And then, you know, crazy enough, right, which is like something that I wouldn't have predicted, is that the one, you guys, like the one fucking charge that he is in jail for, in prison for, okay, for 25 to life, 25 years, right now today, the only reason why he's in prison today is because, um, yeah, this one single conspiracy to murder an acquaintance's ex-husband. Like, that's insane out of all the shit that he did. So 
sconce in this 2020 motion. Okay, this motherfucker is breathing, living and breathing today. He could be listening right now. If so, fuck you. Um, yeah, his 2020 motion, he he basically filed a motion to have his the revocation of his probation like set aside. Set aside. So it went up to the appeals court. This is the initial case where I was like, what the fuck is this about? Who is this but what funeral home case? Yeah. And then I went down a fucking rabbit hole. Um, yeah, as you can imagine, that this 2021 order revocation is affirmed. Like you, mm-hmm. You're still in jail. So I'm sure you're wondering, like, what is the update like on, you know, what the business, what's going on? Uh, that's the fucking update. Like, that's literally like the 2021 update is he, you know, had his final appeal or not final, final, but like his latest appeal denied for, you know, the revocation of his probation. Um, there were several class actions filed by over 20,000 um, families on behalf of 20,000 bodies that is alleged to have gone through his business or in his hands in some <clears throat> in some way, shape, or form. I'm losing my voice as we're speaking. That's crazy. My final rebuttal is is that you should always take deep breaths outside, but if you smell anything described as sickly sweet. I'm not saying to panic for sure, but, you know, as much as I love a neighbor that minds their business, I do appreciate and I think society always in some sense sometimes appreciates when a neighbor doesn't mind their business, right? And and picks up the phone and calls the fire chief instead of the police when they want something done. What I want you to take away from this episode is not that, um, you know, every individual that you've ever loved that's maybe passed on has been mishandled. This is horrifying and horrible. And and I hope, I hope, I hope very rare. I am not an expert on funeral home drama. Uh, I don't want to be because I think it's it's just just the exploitation of people, living people at their at their weakest and worst and and saddest and most most in despair and um that's who it hurts you know, i can't even imagine what those families went through having to learn this and know this um but you know i hope god i hope he's just so uncomfortable right now like i hope that everyone involved is so uncomfortable and that's the thing like all those other people i think they were charged with some shit but like if he got out you know what i mean if david got out fast if these people are walking around if y'all are listening like who fucking knows, right? What are the odds? Maybe how likely, who knows? Um, yeah, I hope you all uh, have a horrible fucking time in life. I really do. Genuinely from the bottom of my toes to the top of my fucking skull. But to everyone else who listens, thank you for following along and thanks for listening. And remember that if you are going to be part of a conspiracy, maybe keep it cute and keep it mute and keep it solo. <laughs> Bye guys. Be safe. I love you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.